There are two different kinds of memories, behaviors. One set is known as explicit, and one set is known as implicit. Explicit memories, behaviors are uh, actions that you can voluntarily, by choice, recall, or if they're behaviors you can initiate. So you can decide, for instance, uh, perhaps how you walked here, or uh, you can choose uh, make decisions on uh, some decisions you can make volitionally in life. You can choose. You can choose to recall something. If I ask you a question about a certain period in your life and you can remember it, that's an explicit memory because you can not only recall it at will, but you can express it through language. So explicit memories and behaviors are they're under our, our conscious control. We can choose when we act on an explicit behavior or an explicit memory. We can choose when to recall it and when not to recall it. And we can use language in describing explicit content. Uh, there's two different kinds of, in general, explicit content that you have. One is called episodic, which is just the memories you have. It's the, then I did this, then I did that, then they said this to me, and then I looked at them with a gasp, and then I said, how could you say that, and blah, blah, blah. So it's uh, any sequence of events that you can recall, generally involving yourself and another, or another group of people. Semantic memories are essentially theories, ideas, beliefs you have. They're not based on your actual experience. They're based on cognition, things that you've heard, been told, or that you've worked at yourself by reflection and uh, some kind of sustained thinking. So in general, uh, implicit memories and content is very easy to change. If you believe uh, something that is incorrect and you're not a Republican, then somebody can tell you otherwise, and sorry about that. That's, that was unnecessary, but <laughs> it felt good still. Uh, <coughs> you can be told something is not a fact, and you can update your beliefs simply by getting a new set of facts. So explicit memories or, or content, if you believe... Uh, that if you didn't know that, uh, I don't know, Lithuania was a country, somebody could tell it to you, that'd be a boring conversation, but you could then, <laughs> you would know that. So uh, much of our education is involved in imbuing, instilling, installing uh, semantic content into our brains, shoving it in, things that we can then regurgitate out on tests. Uh, again, they're easy to consciously adapt. The vast bulk of human behavior and memory uh, and moods are implicit. They are not uh, activated by choice. They're not stored in the left hemisphere. They're stored actually in the right brain, which is not under our adult volitional control. Uh, they're triggered automatically by context. So panic attacks, feeling suddenly good for no reason, feeling sad uh, when you stumble upon 
something that reminds you of a previous rejection or loss in your life. Um, all of these moods and behavioral states and even those memories that come up that you really don't want to think about. Uh, memories of painful exchanges in a relationship or disappointing events in your life. These are known as implicit content. You don't have a choice about them. And uh, they are just as important. And the vast bulk of our, uh, essentially, the content that we store in our brains are implicit. We do not consciously decide when we uh, or how these memories and behaviors are activated and for how long they stay activated. So there's priming. Priming is the early experiences in your life, in infancy and childhood, that set long-term patterns into your adult life. And one of the most obvious examples of priming is attachment in early life, the way you attach to your caregivers will, yes, affect deeply and influence the way you choose partners and your moods and feelings about relationships and how much you're going to trust other people and whether you move towards intimacy or fear it. So that's not under your conscious control. It's an implicit pattern and in other words there's very little you can do about it. You can change it. I'll talk about how. Conditioning is the Pavlovian response. If there's something in your life that you quickly associate with pain or disappointment, then you'll avoid that stimuli when it occurs in the future. For instance, if certain nights of uh, the week are you associate with your parents being uh, angry or certain events in your childhood or uh, certain places you associate with pain. For me, a very, for a long time, the dentist's office was a something I unconsciously just could not uh, make an appointment for, even if I wanted to. Uh, so we associate certain things with pain, and we avoid them. And we certain, associate certain things with pleasure, and we move towards them. Uh, in childhood, Sugar is, of course, immediately uh, rewarded with feelings of neural boost and uh, a change in mood. Very often children who are scared or sad or lonely can eat candy and suddenly become just filled with energy. And so for the rest of our lives, we associate sweets and uh, certain kind of foods with mood boosts and changing the way we feel. And it's not like there's a choice in the matter. When we start to feel uh, a mood that's painful, we will almost immediately, without any thought, move towards either certain substances or certain activities. Procedural are simply uh, things that were once conscious that you needed to do, you needed to work on consciously, but over time and repetition became unconscious. Classic example is when you first learn to ride a bike or play any kind of sport or musical instrument or even type. It had to, at first you had to focus on it and do it very consciously, but over time it became so ingrained that you probably now can type and can ride a bike, I hope, and can walk without conscious oversight. It's implicit behavior. So you're following between. So 
The problem and the, the good news about implicit behaviors is that they become very fast, automatic. They're very, very sound when they work well. Uh, the vast bulk of evolution has primed us or uh, essentially installed a vast amount of implicit behaviors that allow us to survive. Even a three-year-old child can play soccer much better than a sophisticated robot after decades of trying to, with robotics, trying to train uh, inanimate objects to kick balls, three-year-olds can do it better. So we have so many implicit skills that are just so beneficial. Uh, the problem, though, with implicit content and emotional beliefs that are installed very young in life is that they're very resistant to change. You can't simply tell someone that um, they're deeply embedded beliefs are wrong because they will continue they're not they're resistant to the left brain's uh, language they are installed in in regions of the brain that are essentially walled off from language and from reason they're deeply ingrained the only thing that changes an implicit emotional belief for example, um, some people cannot in relationships ever break up with their partners, even when they're abused, because it was something in their childhood that their parents modeled for them that breaking up is not permitted, so they'll stay even when relationships have become toxic. And even if you tell your friend, hey, uh, you're suffering right now, they will still stay in the relationship because it's a deeply embedded emotional belief. The only way to change deeply embedded emotional beliefs and behaviors and patterns is to literally slowly over repetition show yourself that there's another way to or that an emotional belief is wrong. And you have to literally witness it over and over and over again. You have to experience it. It's not a matter of somebody telling you. It's about being shown, not being told. It's about experiencing that this pattern is causing me suffering. And I can tell you that uh, from I've been sober for 23 years. I've seen people who come into sobriety years and years after any sane person would have given up the substances that they're abusing, they know quite well that their drugs or alcohol or food or um, whatever behaviors are killing them, but still they haven't yet fully seen or cognized that they're, even though they know it deeply, emotionally, they're not aware of how deeply this behavior is causing them suffering. So the person who comes home after overworking for hours and hours and hours uh, is alone in their apartment, starts to feel lonely, and then starts to <coughs> alleviate those feelings by eating. They might know that that's not a solution for their loneliness and disconnection, but until they deeply, clearly witness for themselves the connection between eating and continued isolation and continued despair, they'll continue in that pattern. So we literally have to uh, show ourselves that an, uh, an implicit belief or behavior is 
causing suffering. So you think that that would be rel relatively easy. If it's causing suffering, why don't we just see it? Well, the Buddha's second noble truth and the key to the Buddha's uh, core insights in the Dharma was that the problem that intercedes or intervenes in us seeing the behaviors that cause us suffering is that when we start to feel stress in our lives or pain, instead of staying with it and observing it and seeing what's causing it, we immediately repress it or distract ourselves and look for something to make it go away. So the person who uh, feels lonely and eats obsessively doesn't continue to observe that once they eat, over time, the loneliness returns. It hasn't addressed anything. They're still isolated. There's still no one making them feel loved in their life. They're still disconnected. What they'll do is they'll, after they eat and they, for, they remove the loneliness for a short period of time, then they will turn on Netflix or something else. They'll focus on some other stressor in their life, and then they'll, they'll repress awareness of that by another uh, compulsive behavior, and then they'll jump to another stressor and another stressor, and we keep jumping around, and we never actually see the fact for ourselves. We never undo the deeply embedded behaviors that uh, once worked for us but are now causing a lot of disappointment and loneliness and uh, disconnection in our lives. Almost all of our maladaptive behaviors work at one point, which is why they're so deeply ingrained. For instance, the child who grows up in a family where uh, acknowledging guilt leads to severe punishment, that child will quickly learn, one, never to apologize or acknowledge guilt, and two, to lie whenever they've made a mistake those behaviors will become implicit over time. They'll become deeply ingrained, and by the time that child has grown to an adult, they will, whenever confronted by a, a disappointing behavior that they've done, they will immediately deny, they will deflect attention, they will uh, rationalize the behavior, they will essentially uh, lie and say, I didn't do that. And you might think this person is being conniving, consciously uh, is terrible. Why is this person so prone, given to lying and not acknowledging guilt? But in fact, uh, these behaviors, I can tell you my work is in counseling, so these behaviors become so deeply ingrained in the most formative, most important years of our life, but by the time we're adult, they become automatic. The person doesn't even stay conscious long enough to see that their lying is driving other people away and causing them suffering because they lie and then they simply move on and focus on something else. And they don't stay present with the entire chain, what the Buddha called Paticca Samapada, the chain of action and result, to see, oh, shit, when I deny that I've made a mistake and I shift culpability to someone else, it causes stress and suffering in my relationships. People trust me less. I don't feel more intimate with people. They simply just 
move on to the next issue and then the next issue and the next issue. And so there's no emotional learning at all. So the key to almost the entirety of the Buddha's insights was what he called being aware of arising and passing. Or watching a behavior or emotional pain or something appearing, watching for the entirety of the experience the results and what happens after we stay with it, what arises next. When the Buddha became enlightened, he did it because he uh, sat uninterrupted for an extremely extended period of time. And over the course of those uh, nights of simply sitting and observing his mind, he watched as certain thoughts, he said, led to certain kinds of moods and emotions and feelings and discomfort. And over time, he saw which thoughts and which behaviors cause suffering in the long term. And he saw which thoughts and behaviors and deeply embedded beliefs caused ease and comfort and were useful. And so he began to witness deeply, without any interruption, the unskillful beliefs and behaviors that were deeply embedded in him. If we don't do, if we don't know how to extend our awareness and sometimes follow through and see what kind of long-term results our actions have, It leads to, uh, of course, ingrained behaviors that uh, we never abandon. Very often behaviors that were appropriate in childhood, such as avoidance, coping, running away from any uh, interaction if there might be conflict in it. That's a classic learning from childhood that persists into adult life because in childhood we find conflict with our parents terrifying. So unless we see in adult life, that avoiding conflict makes relationships even worse. To maintain a relationship, you sometimes have to discuss difficult things. Avoiding conflict always sabotages a relationship. But in order to know that, you have to stay and see what happens if you avoid constantly working through difficult interactions and continually run from it. But another even more simple thing is that the Buddha taught that the very simple experience of pain and of emotional and physical pain, we never stay around with it long enough to see that it passes. This is another important learning. If we don't learn to observe pain arising and passing in our lives, if we simply, every time we feel some kind of emotional discomfort, we eat or we turn on Netflix or we drink, if we feel anxiety or if we feel lonely, we uh, Swipe, what is it, right or left on Tinder? I don't know. What is it? Uh, Left. (laughs) Swipe left. So if every time we start to, uh, we start to feel um, any, like, loneliness or sadness or grief or despair, we habitually, compulsively move to a, a behavior to repress those feelings, we never learn that those emotional states pass on their own. And therefore, we have to constantly overreact to every 
difficulty and setback in our life because we've trained ourselves over the entirety of our life that unless I do fucking something, it'll stay. Difficulty, pain, sadness, loneliness will not pass on its own unless I take drastic actions. And this makes us more and more overreactive to stimuli in our life. <clears throat> in childhood, when we feel disconnected or uh, abandoned by our you know, loved ones or when we feel uh, shamed, uh, those emotional experiences are so painful and they seem to last for so long that the child very quickly learns it has to do something, anything, in my case it was comic books and sugar, to make the emotional pain go away. And so the child is teaching itself throughout its growth that difficult experiences don't pass. They last. And also another thing that we start to uh, experience is that any kind of painful or unpleasant emotion can be avoided if we simply find the right distraction. If we find the right substance, the right behavior, we can get rid of all our pain. If we could just find the right television show or the right book or the right uh, drug or the right, you know, person on Tinder, then uh, we'll never have to feel lonely or sad or disappointed or frustrating. It's just the only reason why uh, the problem in life is not that we haven't learned to simply be with difficult experiences and over time see that they have a natural lifespan on their own and that we don't have to react each time. We ingrain the belief that I have to do something every single time I feel uncomfortable. And that translates to people who I literally, it's kind of fun because I'm so fucking old. I, I love watching people who grew up with cell phones because when their cell phone dies, it's a fucking catastrophe. I was 40 before the idea of having a phone with me was even a thing, right? I'm 57, so like in 2001, 9-11, when I was 40, I, you know, that's when like people started carrying around these things. And so when this thing dies, I don't fucking give a fuck. <laughs> it's not an inconvenience in my life. I'm just like, okay, I'll just like... I'll just enjoy the view, or I'll just <laughs> think about something, but I'm not crawling out of my skin. So, uh, it's important to develop the ability to not just see the long-term results of our actions so that we can learn and grow and make the transition from maladaptive strategies that worked in childhood to adaptive strategies that help us uh, maintain and sustain and deepen in relations in our adult life. But even more important, it's really essential to learn how to stay with unpleasant emotions, what the Buddha, or experiences, what the Buddha called dukkha, wonderful world, to stay with dukkha and see that it passes on its own. All of the Buddha's wisdom, known as Satipana, and the Paticca Samapada, developed from this ability. The Buddha learned to sit and observe that all shit that arises passes. Every single experience in your life that has a beginning will have an end. Period. End of sentence. And very often it will pass a lot 
sooner than we believe. I will give you now a personal story. When I was, uh, it was supposed to probably about seven or eight years ago, and uh, I was home at night, and uh, it was about 10, and then suddenly out of the blue, I started having what I can only describe as a kind of pain in my lower back and side that was indescribable, a pain that just felt like I thought literally I was dying, and uh, without any exaggeration. And uh, so in excruciating agony, I somehow made it to the laptop and did what you're really not supposed to do, but I did. I played, you know, Google Doctor, and um, I found out because the symptoms were so exact to the description that I was actually having a kidney stone. Um, women who've had both childbirth and kidney stones, well, we've all had childbirth. Women who've given birth to children uh, <laughs> uh, have said that right after giving birth, kidney stones are right up there. It was a kind of pain that I can, I, I, thankfully we don't remember pain very well, human beings, so I, but I can just tell you that if you, you know, could have given me, uh, something that would have risked death just to make the pain go away, I would have considered it. It was that excruciating. But at the same time, I had just read this uh, Buddhist memoir by Ajahn Lee who talked about having an operation without anesthesia simply by staying present with the pain, observing it, not taking it personally. <laughs> All the tools I'll tell you. So I thought... Oh, fuck. I'm going to try. And it was fucking unbearable. It was just, and I won't even tell you what you experience when you pass a kidney stone. Just let your worst imagination fill it in and then multiply that by a couple of factors and you'll... you'll. But uh, I got to an excruciating point and then... I was, I stayed with it, and then the pain started to subside, and it started to slowly fade uh, after I passed the stone. You don't have to know what that involves, but, uh, and then it faded, and it faded, and it passed until it was no longer there. I stayed with the entirety of it without any, you know, painkiller, without anything, just being with it. The amazing result was that just as much as the work I've done with patients and hospice, after that happened, nothing in my life bothered me at all. <laughs> nothing. Not just because I was still alive. It wasn't that. It was because I knew from that experience, not consciously, explicitly, but through experience, implicitly, I knew that every difficult experience and setback and disappointment and frustration and challenging experience was going to pass on its own. And that I did not need always to take an action in life. In fact, a lot of times I could wait, talk to other people, and instead of reacting, I could respond to difficult experience. The difference between reacting and responding is that responding, you always have a choice of two or more different ways to behave or to 
interact with a difficult experience, and also you run it by someone else. So responding is knowing you have choices and talking it through with others. Reacting is following the first impulse and not talking it through with someone else. So that great transition in life from reacting to responding to difficult experience in life was made available simply by being with the entirety of a painful experience. Now, I don't want to encourage you all to get kidney stones. I don't even know how I could do that. <laughs> uh, but uh, it is very, very worthwhile to start as a practice when you start, you hear news, somebody says something that's disturbing, when uh, you are faced with a timetable at a work or a project that feels overwhelming, to take some time and simply be with the internal state and observe it and not react and not try to make it go away. Obviously, choose an appropriate uh, uh, way to develop this tool. Now, awareness of dissolution, Banga Nana, the, uh, in the, the progress of insight, almost invariably is that it's followed sometimes by what's called Baya, which is an existential dread, believe it or not. When you realize that everything passes on its own, some people wind up with a nihilistic belief, what's the point? Everything is impermanent. And that's kind of true. Everything in life that comes into being, that arises, will pass. There's no relationship, there's no joy or pleasure in your life that is sustainable over forever. It will always have a birth, and then it will pass over time. So, yes, there is a kind of, at first, at times, there can be a sense of, well, what's the point? But in my experience, actually, deeply, uh, we start to have a far more important realizations, such as, uh, one, we start to cherish uh, connections, joy, beautiful experiences, because we don't take them for granted. We know that they will pass, and therefore we become attuned to the beauty of life and to the connections that we have, and we really begin to appreciate um, our experience. Two, it means that we... Uh, also, stop being as reactive to challenges and setbacks and disappointments and bills that, uh, or mounting financial pressures. We begin to realize that these things actually do very often the immediate stress that we experience when they become visible to us. If we stay with it, those stresses and disappointments or frustrations or fears begin to subside. Uh, finally, there are a couple of ways to do, develop this great insight. The Buddha said first, you break down experience into components. You just don't observe a painful experience globally. In the uh, Satipana, the Buddha teaches that when we want to learn or develop insight, we first observe what is going on in the breath and the body when we get pain. So if you start to experience an emotional pain, like sadness or grief, or physical pain, like uh, in your back or uh, in a knee when you're sitting, 
you before you just go into the physical pain, just view how you're breathing, how do you respond to it, how does your body resist the pain, and then the feelings associated. Feelings are gut reactions, they are tightness in the stomach, or tightening in the chest, or locking the jaw, oh, I can't believe that I have to deal with this. Um, for instance, you get news that you have to go home and you don't want to uh, take time off from work, but and you get that emotional resistance, just observe it, be with it, watching it arise and pass. Watching the moods in the mind, does the mind become at first distracted, or does it become jumpy, or does it become tired, does it tune out? Various people respond to pain and discomfort in various different ways. Finally, after you've observed the pain in the body, the way we breathe, the feelings we attach to it, all the stuff we pack onto pain that makes it that much more difficult, and when you start to peel away these different components and look at them one by one, pain or emotional experiences that were once unbearable become very, very bearable. This is what I did when I had the kidney stone, break it down into how am I breathing right now, where is the pain, what is the shape of the pain, how, do I, how am I resisting the pain in my stomach or chest or throat. Or Don't only fixate on the pain alone. Keep your awareness wide enough so that you're aware of other stimuli. Uh, this is a tip for somebody who has gotten way more tattoos than they need. When I get tattooed, I don't only just stare at the pain and just feel the needle going into my arm and go, oh, that's going to arise and pass. I, I also will feel the pain, but I'll also listen to the sounds. Tattoo artists are always playing music. It's always crappy. Right here. It's always a hardcore band that I don't actually like, you know. <coughs> Uh, so I, but listen to the sounds, see the sights, framing it. The Buddha called this the tamiyata, not allowing the mind to. We don't push away the pain or the emotional discomfort, but we don't allow the brain to to spotlight the pain. We keep awareness big enough that we're aware of discomfort, but we're also aware of more than just the discomfort. We're aware of sensations that are pleasurable, and finally. Most importantly in all, don't take it personally. All people have emotional pain. All people have physical pain. Your body was designed for it. It has nothing to do with your personality or anything intrinsic to you. If you start to observe it from a place of curiosity and investigation, you'll start to witness over time that it's just something that arises and passes on its own, and it has very little to do with your personality how good a person you are or not. That's a lot of talking. Let's actually put that into practice so that we can get some of this great wisdom that we've been talking about. So finding a really comfortable seated position and all that means is try to sit a little upright. A couple of good techniques for that is either try to align you, the sensations you associate with your ears, with your shoulders, with your buttocks. If your ears are in line with your shoulders and they're in line with your buttocks, 
or your sit bones, then you will generally have an upright position. Or a simpler way to conceive of this is just take your head and gently tilt it a little bit back like you're looking at a tall building. That will keep your head from uh, slouching in front of your chest, and that's really the really the most important uh, posture that we want to avoid is slouching where the head and the neck start to drift in front of the body. So if you just prevent that from happening, the rest will fall into place. So let's uh, do a few breaths that will <coughs> help us tell the midbrain that we're safe, that we can attend to internal experience rather than get caught up in worries about things that are happening around us or in the future. Take a nice smooth in-breath through your nose and if you like lift your shoulders up and just hold them way high, holding in the breath and then as you breathe out through the mouth, <coughs> dropping the shoulders and pull your shoulders back if it feels good for you, if it feels appropriate. That opens up the chest. The more your chest is open, it uh, relaxes the vagal vagus nerve, sends a message to the midbrain, we're okay. Second smooth in-breath, pulling in the belly really tight, holding it in like you're trying to Quench your belly and then breathe out through the mouth. <coughs> and soften that belly as you release the breath. Just nice soft belly. That too tones the vagal vagus nerve. Very important process in developing ease and peace, tranquility and calm. And then for the third in breath, Squinching the muscles in the face, locking the jaw, furrowing the brow, squinching the nose, just tighten everything, and then breathe out and relax, release the jaw. Soften those muscles around the eyes and encourage your eyes behind the eyes, the eyelids to settle, to take a little time off from bouncing around, looking for stimuli. You can remind your eyes that you're not looking, there's nothing going around, there's nothing you need to pay attention to, you're just in a room with people meditating, so there's not much to follow, especially when your eyelids are closed, so just encourage those eyes to relax and settle. When the eyes are settled, the mind tends to settle. And we're trying to cultivate that state of arriving in life when you've traveled a long distance. You've gotten off the plane, you've taken a bumpy taxi ride to a location you've been waiting to visit and you put your heavy bags down and you find a really comfortable seat 
and you've arrived at that destination you've been looking forward to. And the truth is you can have that experience anytime you want to simply land in the present moment and just let go of any need to go anywhere, do anything, please anyone. Just cultivate that state of arriving. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to please. You're here just for your own ease and comfort. So choose a sensation that's occurring naturally on its own without you having to intervene. That could be the feeling of your body breathing in and out. You don't really have to choose to breathe. Your body will do it on its own. Or it could be the sounds occurring in this room. You're not creating the sound of my voice or the sound of people breathing and Slight ambient sounds from the street. It could even be the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Just use a present time sensation as an anchor. An anchor is something that we attend to. We learn to settle the mind and also to build up our skills of staying present with a sensation, and this will obviously be useful in the second part of the meditation. So your mind will wander, of course, and that's okay. Don't take it personally. It happens to everyone. The key is to just bring it back, to not get stressed or frustrated or disappointed or impatient. Just 
bring it back again and again, feeling good about the fact that you're developing a very core tool in any emotional and spiritual growth in life is to be able to observe. So we're simply training the mind to relax and observe. And that requires a lot of self-acceptance and kindness with ourselves and not in any way adding any stress to the practice. That just makes it more difficult. So any frustration or impatience or self-judgment will only make it more difficult. Just feel good, even if your mind's wandering, that you're creating the conditions which your mind over time will learn to stay present and observe life. Even if you don't manage to stay with the breath very long before your mind drifts away, if you spend this time without adding any self-criticism, just being kind with yourself, then the meditation will be deeply worthwhile. So many therapeutic modalities start with simply self-acceptance as a foundation for healing and growth.
So at this point, you can just allow the anchor that you've been working with to, <coughs> on its own, fade from the foreground of your awareness. I'd like you to find in your body any or perhaps the most difficult, challenging, unpleasant sensation. It might be an itch. It might be a slight irritation, something rubbing the wrong way, a slight, maybe a feeling of hunger or some just sensation that is not particularly pleasurable. It doesn't have to be anything excruciating. Hopefully you're not experiencing anything deeply unpleasant, but just find something that you can observe and just keep your awareness on or keep that sensation in your awareness, remembering that we always keep the mind a little wider than what we're observing. But just keep in mind that itch, that throbbing, that discomfort. And just see how you breathe when that sensation is in your awareness? Does your breathing become a little shallower or quicker? And then keeping the discomfort still in your awareness, begin to relax the breath. So we're not allowing the discomfort to affect the way we breathe. We're keeping the breath very relaxed. Noticing the shape of the discomfort. Does it shift or change? Is it tingling or is it a, a throbbing or a dull ache or what is the sensation like? And again, keeping your awareness wide enough that you're also aware of pleasant or neutral sensations, the sounds in the room, the lights flickering behind your eyelids, as well as feeling the sensation. Notice when you keep this discomfort in your awareness, do you add any subtle resistance? Do you, does your belly tighten? Does your chest contract? Does your throat feel tighter? Do you start to feel some furrowing of the brow? Just notice the Buddha calls any feelings that we add. And then keeping the discomfort and awareness Soften the belly, relax, open up the shoulders, unfurrow the brow, relax the jaw so that you're not 
resisting the discomfort. Noticing when you keep this discomfort in your awareness, does the mind try to pull away? Does it become fixated on it? Does it, the mind start to feel tired and sleepy? This is the mood we add to. discomfort when it appears and to see if you can again just settle the mind keeping the mind spacious and wide hearing the sounds of the room feeling other sensations in your body as well as the discomfort and now check back into the shape and texture of the discomfort has it changed at all When you do this often enough, you realize that resistance always makes pain worse because pain is simply a signal trying to get your attention. But when you don't resist pain, then pain begins to subside. So let's put aside that sensation. And I'd like to now bring up an emotional kind of discomfort. Visualize a situation in life that feels uncomfortable, a time when you feel lonely or disconnected from others, human beings, we are made to connect, so almost all of our emotional pain involves some form of isolation or disconnection. So visualize some setting when we feel lonely or unappreciated. And this setting maybe is associated with a compulsive behavior. We might eat or turn on television or read or do something to distract our attention away from our sadness or loneliness, disappointment, grief. But instead of Resisting or running, just where is this feeling in your body? Where do you feel it? You feel it in your throat, in your face, in your stomach? Where do you feel loneliness or sadness or disappointment? If it helps, still hold the image associated with 
a setting or situation where we feel disconnected. And as we observe this emotional state, how does the breath feel? Does the breath again feel shallow? If so, can we relax and deepen the breath so that we can have a full, easeful breath, even when we think or reflect on something painful? Can we reduce the amount of stress we add by the way we breathe? Notice when this feeling is present. Do we resist it? Do we tighten our shoulders or do we tighten the muscles in the back of the neck? Do we physically tighten when we're in the presence of a negative emotional experience? And again, seeing if you can soften and relax your body so that you can be with whatever you need to feel without running or resisting it. And again, keep your awareness spacious and wide so you're not just only feeling whatever you need to feel in this practice, but that you're also hearing the sounds, feeling the heat in the body, the lights flickering behind eyelids. Keeping the mind spacious and open and relaxed. And then check back in and see if the feeling itself, the state of being embodied by either something in your body or just the general mood has changed at all. When you don't resist Sadness, grief, loneliness, fear. We actually process life, process and learn from experience. We actually learn to grow from our experience rather than run and resist.
So just allow the image, whatever generated the emotional state that you were working with, to recede and just observe any change in the way you feel. In a moment, I'm going to ring the bell. <coughs> the request is that you, before you simply look around the room, just take a moment to look, open your eyes enough to see the ground in front of you and integrate sight into your awareness in such a way that you don't push away the feelings and the embodied state that you've connected with in this practice, that you maintain this mindful awareness, which means awareness of what's going on internally.